Welcome to House of Decline. This is our 120th episode. And before we get into the show, I just want to ask everyone to go to patreon.com slash house of decline and subscribe. You can get a daily comic. Every single day there's a new comic that's not posted anywhere else, only on Patreon. Mm-hmm. And they're raunchy and graphic. And oh cool. yeah, there's a lot of straight up pornography. It's not it's not pornography. It's not pornography. It is not that. Um, but we have a very special guest with us today that I'm going to have Alex introduce. And Alex, please. Uh, movie reviewer, media archivist, podcaster, poster extraordinaire. <laughs> we have Esther at Cappy Baroness. Uh, thank you for being on the show, Esther. I love your work. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I think the things the the thing that a lot of people know you for, uh, who would listen to our podcast, is your podcast, Get Cynical. Uh, could you describe what Get Cynical is all about? Um, so Get Cynical started as me and my co-host, my friend Spencer, uh, we're just bullshitting one day, and we said, we should do, like, like a three-episode, like, podcast about the Nostalgia Critic, because, <sighs> and all his, his, you know, big, cr- stupid crossover movies. Mm-hmm. Um... And that really ballooned out of control, and we ended up doing a much longer <laughs> season of a podcast about everything he did. Yes. Because um, he has many movies. He has so many movies. <laughs> he has a lot of movies. He has a lot of, like, side projects that we got to talk about that are, reveal his his psyche in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became Get Cynical. And when we sort of uh, wrapped up the Doug Walker Nostalgia Critic stuff, um, we decided we would sort of expand the show into talking more generally about um internet people whose i guess you could say internet people whose reach exceeds their grasp who are (laughs) trying to you know uh create something very ambitiously but do not ever have the talent to back it up um for our second season we talked about youtubers who tried to make movies we talked about how the react fine bros guys made a movie <laughs> and um of course like pewdiepie had a series and yes fred had a movie and guys Good like that who, who started as like youtube sensations and then when they tried to make the transition to like actual hollywood it just it just didn't work out mm-hmm. um and then now we're in our current season which is season three which is covering the work of max landis um <laughs> who's another one of these guys who is just um has the same kind of personality as a lot of these YouTube guys, as a guy mm-hmm. who wants very, very badly to be a uh, taken seriously as a game changer kind of guy, mm-hmm. but who is just not talented or interesting enough in any way that to make that ever happen. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, there's a type of person. Um, I think maybe encapsulate. Did you ever read that Don Hughes review of Baby Driver? Yes. About so to paraphrase the review, it's uh, I think like a lot of when white guys, let's be honest, get to film school, the one strong idea they have is like I'm gonna make a movie with a bunch of licensed music that I can't afford yet, and then they have a film professor tell them that film is about you know the depressing weight of the you know at the bottom of your soul, and then they quickly discard that idea. And then he says Edgar Wright never went to film school, is what I'm saying. So he still <laughs> has this sort of juvenile idea about you know what constitutes something satisfying or a good piece of art uh Mm -hmm. the difference is edgar wright is a competent filmmaker and can you know (laughs) and yeah i mean that's what's funny about someone like max landis too is that he can occasionally at least once like chronicle is a decent movie as you say as you say in your reviews like 
So it's weird that it's somebody that knows sort of how to be good, but can't ever reach that again. Yeah, I guess that way what makes him so interesting is that whereas Doug Walker is just incompetence all the way through, Max Landis yeah. has this um, potential that is totally squandered. Yeah, what makes what makes Doug interesting and ultimately by the end of that season, I think we ended up having some like weird affection for him is that like he is maybe the least talented filmmaker of all time, <laughs> but he kept trying and kept growing like his ambitions grew more and more and more even as like you could have told him right at the beginning that like no you're bad at this you're really bad at this but he just kept trying to make it bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. and more complex and more emotionally complex weirdly absolutely um, yeah whereas, co- self-commentary yeah yeah uh, max landis is totally different because he's you know hollywood scion he's like a nepotism case obviously he just grew up assuming that he was great mm. um and his ambitions ultimately are a lot smaller. Like, Chronicle is a good movie. I like it a lot. But every Max Landis script and, like, pitch is ultimately the same idea. Mm-hmm. Where, like, the thing about Chronicle is, like, you think it's just kind of like a found footage movie about, you know, kids getting superpowers and fucking around. But it turns out to be a superhero origin story in a more traditional yeah. way. So it's like, you get to the end and you're like, oh, this thing I was watching was actually something else all along. Um, and that's just what every Max Landis script kind of is. He kind of just has the one trick. Um, and that's what makes him so, like, so much more loathsome than than Doug Walker, I think. Yeah. Doug Walker at least, you know, expands his, like, the wall, his wall review is terrible, but it shows him growing as an artist, you know, in a weird yeah. way. <laughs> um, I mean, his wall review is so terrible that... There are now, like, hour-long reviews devoted to the wall review. Like, multiple hours-long reviews. It's so, like, it's so singular a piece of criticism that it extends past the criticism and becomes artwork unto itself, which is what I think is interesting. Do you think you're going to do it for the other rock operas? Like, could we we maybe, like, start some kind of uh, petition to get him to do it for Tommy? Or um... (laughs) Tommy's the one I was thinking. I hope he does. Like, I hope that the sort of the meme that 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 the wall review became does not scare him off ever doing anything like that again because i would love to see it i would i mean i love tommy i listened to tommy like maybe 60 times in 10th grade and i was like it's me (laughs) it's me that's me i'm i'm tommy and i literally played young tommy in a in a play and i was i was uh in the scene where he gets molested so that was my (laughs) oh yeah yeah i'm your almost yeah Oh yeah, um, and also also in the scene where his father takes him to a, uh, a sex worker as well. Oh, yeah. Did nice. you see the acid queen? I would love to see Doug Walker's version of that. Yeah. Um, and the awful computer animation in the wall review is so yeah. amazing. That blew <laughs> like, me away. I didn't know that was coming when I watched it. It's so so strange. It's like a, like a weird cat creature of some kind. What yeah, yeah these weird spindly. monsters. It's, yeah. I, I don't know where they came from or what they're doing there. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're they're there to turn me on. That's what <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I think starting out with Doug Walker is really interesting because he's very emblematic of this um, th- this sort of uh, current trend of YouTubers or fame seeking individuals. Where, as you mentioned during one of your reviews, your Dear Evan Hansen review, there's a great phrase where you talk about egomania eclipsing reality. 
Um, and I think that sort of this uh, this thread of of this this new fame, this new social media fame, where everything has to be infused with a personality mm-hmm. as well. It's just not enough to create art. You also have to be a talking head behind the art as well. And that creates a lot of interesting tension because um, what if this person is is an idiot or a weirdo or, you know, and they get big anyway just because the way they've structured their reviews are sort of addictive for like a 13-year-old just clicking through the algorithm or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's why Doug Walker and all of those people around him got big is that they all had... Um, they all had a personality. They all had like lore, like Linkara, the comics reviewer, <laughs> yeah. is like of all of them. I think the most invested in the lore. Famously, he he has the Linkara movie that is a direct sequel to one of the Nostalgia Critic movies <laughs> <laughs> that Doug was not involved in. He just is so obsessed with like the story of all of these reviewers that he has to continue it. Yeah, um, it's his own yeah, the Jesus rolls. Uh. <laughs> it's like. You, yeah, I think, like, the tide has definitely turned on guys like that. Like, we talk about on, on Get Cynical all the time. Like, yeah. you don't have sort of uh, uh, YouTube reviewers being, like, characters anymore. Yeah. Um, now it's you You make, like, a four-and-a-half-hour video essay about some fucking, like, Nickelodeon show. Um, and that's yes. what everybody wants. But, like, your personality is kind of irrelevant to it. Um, mm-hmm. They're all just pretty homogenous in terms of like the kind of person that's making that stuff. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, kind of a shame. Um, and I think a lot of what we do at Get Cynical is get weirdly nostalgic for this objectively bad era of YouTube. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, you kind of, you kind of can't help but miss it. Like there was, yeah. there's sometimes there's hidden gems back well, then. Some of these YouTube stars will have children of their own one day, and like Max Landis, maybe they will go on to <laughs> make make some uh, some more good content for us. Um, yeah. I can't wait for Dave Ellis's Lindsay Ellis's son to you know give us his book about you know having sex with an alien or something like that. Yeah, I mean Lindsay Ellis is also she she's a very interesting character in Doug Walker lore as well because. Oh, yes. It's it's funny to have somebody who's obviously much more talented, you know, being under the thumb of of a weird oppressive organization, but they are also, you know, appropriate in their own specific way, in their yeah. own unique. <laughs> I mean, you know, talk about Lindsay Ellis was doing a character. She's sort of the last of the characters, and her character was I'm a, I like wine and I like theater and yeah. you know. Exactly. Yeah. Like she was, she's so fascinating because she is visibly, if you watch these, you know, crossover movies, visibly does not want to be there. Um, (laughs) Like is completely half-assing it. There's a great moment um, in one of them we talk about where you just notice that for some of the scenes, she just started wearing sunglasses inside for no reason. (laughs) Like (laughs) had a little too much to drink the night before, I think. But, um, But it's funny because ultimately, yeah, she's the same as all of them, right? Like she is... She went to college, but, like, she's producing the same quality of content, really, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. And I think there was a lot of, like, um, maybe some self-loathing of being involved with these people who are prancing around like idiots. Yeah. Um, but, like, you know, I, I think I think things would have gone better for her if she had been a little more honest about not really being any better than this and just <laughs> been able to have a little more fun with it. It yeah. seems to me that a lot of these people are what, what someone might call theater kids. <laughs> um, 
And I, I have a special place in my heart for theater kids because I was like, you know, like a sort of a loner, outcast, loser type. And they, they were nice to me. So <laughs> I, I put up with their uh, annoyances and they put up with my like brooding cigarette smoking. Like, <laughs> like being like, have you guys ever smoked cigarettes before? It's cool. That was me in 10th grade and the theater kids were like, <gasps> Yeah, um, that, I what, was the theater kid in that in that scenario. Yeah, yeah. That was my I, part of that equation. I can't I can't be too mad at them ever because I always will remember like finally finding friends, you know. So yeah, yeah. you know, it's like whenever someone makes fun of the Gerblins people, you know, it's no, they're yeah. just theater kids. Just let them have fun. It's okay. What are yeah. they? What harm are they? Well, sometimes I mean, uh, Channel Awesome was doing real harm. What with all the sexual harassment. So. Oh, they were evil. Like they yeah. were. That that's the, that's the thing. Like mm. for as much affection as I do have for Doug Walker and for some of those people, like there was heinous things happening on all of those sets. Um, infamously, on one of them, um, Doug just didn't know that you were supposed to like provide food <laughs> to your cast and crew <laughs> while they were shooting these like three and a half hour behemoths. Um, yeah, it, it was a lot of incompetence and a lot of just like real sincere malice. Um, yes. In terms of how those people were treated that we don't want to ever want to lose sight of. And especially with doing the Max Landis season two, like dudes that actual like rapist creep. Yes. Um, so yeah. as much as we, I find it productive to make fun of him. Don't want to lose sight of that. Yeah. Whose dad is a murderer, which Whose is, dad you know. murdered children God. with a helicopter. It was yeah. a, come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's a helicopter. What? <laughs> what? Um, Look, Vic Morrow, Vic Morrow, there's always Vic Morrow. No, no, that's, I don't, that's I don't no get good. the references, but I, uh, Vic I have Vic Morrow one. was you were decapitated. Yeah. Oh, he, yeah, was, <laughs> he was decapitated? Yeah, by, oh. by yeah, a yeah, helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, well. I won't. I won't defend uh, John Landis anymore. <laughs> you defended John Landis all the time. My bad. Um, I've been doing years. it a lot. Now I feel bad. <laughs> like what? No, he's fine. The Stupids. Excellent movie. Excellent movie. <laughs> the Stupids. And Max Landis gets covered in cum with that. Um, are you going to cover his his red letter media appearances? I'd be very interested. We uh, might. I mean, we're definitely doing his YouTube stuff. We're doing an episode on his infamous uh force awakens video um mary <laughs> i haven't video. seen that one mm. i saw wrestling isn't wrestling and yeah. uh the death of superman those were, but i don't know the force awakens video what is the force awakens video? this was like a this was like a world changer this is the one where he says that the character of ray from the force awakens is a mary sue <laughs> um and this caused sort of like a pre the, oh, the, the prelude to the last jedi stuff that would happen two years mm. later um that was that kind of a discourse. Um, and it really was like in that sort of um, just coming out of Gamergate era, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. like a huge deal because he had been like a, a well-liked figure up to that point. And that was really the turning point with him where people um, started just got really, really mad at him. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the beginning of the online era where that sort of thing could happen that quickly. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. Where a like generally liked or beloved or at least tolerated figure is just all of a sudden a complete pariah mm -hmm. um and again should that have happened to him for having a dumb opinion about a movie maybe not i'm glad he is a pariah now because of the other yes. things <laughs> but you know yeah it's like, i mean i'm not mad at him because of that ever i i don't yeah. i don't like that star wars stuff and yeah. the question it's a very interesting question to me though about like 
how Matt, like how how acceptable is online rage against someone who has decided, like you guys said in your podcast, to put their whole life online? Um, that's a fascinating question. Um, that's why I would urge people to listen to Get Cynical, because uh, that's like, you know, I haven't heard a lot of discussion about that. Um, um, and I've seen recently, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but like the movie Prey, there's a lot mm -hmm. of these people coming out and being like, a, a lady could never defeat the predator. <laughs> um, which, yeah, like, what is going on with that? Why? <laughs> Very funny. I mean, yeah, it's, it's all like spinning out from the same premise. Um, that start like I think the the Lady Ghostbusters movie was was the beginning of this mm -hmm. where people mm -hmm. were like women couldn't be Ghostbusters, <laughs> which is a fictional profession. Right. Um, but the the Prey one is very funny to me because every Predator movie is about the Predator getting defeated, so it's not like it's not like it's something that is like impossible. And it's like yeah. a woman could never fucking do this thing that's happened that ha has happened in every movie about the Predator. Yeah. Uh, someone with hunting and tracking experience versus, I mean, Danny Glover's just a cop in the second movie and he defeats the Predator. <laughs> like, what, what special training does Danny Glover have? He had have, cop you know? training. He had, the, he was, he had cop, like, they learned Kung Fu, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, that's what's very interesting about Max Landis, too, is because he simultaneously does a weird queer baiting thing where he sort of pretends oh, yeah. to be gay or he pretends to be bi, mm -hmm. but had also the rainbow hair for a while. Yeah, and which he does, it seems like to get away with misogyny. It yeah. seems like it's okay. I'm I I have rainbow stuff, so I can't be misogynistic, mm -hmm. right? Which allows yeah. him to get away with all of the strange, you know, woman fetishizing stuff in his uh, in his videos. You know, it's a uh, yeah. I don't know. That I don't is know where a that great, comes from. That is a great trick that guys pull now, where they yeah. just sort of vaguely intimate that they are some kind of, some variety of queer. So it's like, this is, you know, people, I know people like him, but this is what Taiko Waititi does all the time. <laughs> yes, I yes. Think, I think Peter Coffin does this too, so. This is, yeah, I th honestly, I think that that is like in the exact same vein of like, you can't get mad at me for saying insanely misogynist shit because, yeah. you know, maybe I'm gay. I didn't say I was, but... Yeah. Look at all this other, you know, it's just like, it feels like there's a new one every year of this kind of guy who will just like say awful shit and get away with it. Uh, well, I'm glad you brought up Taika Waititi because that brings up another classic Esther review, which is your <laughs> Jojo Rabbit review, uh, which oh, yeah. is fantastic. My, as somebody, I'm Jewish. Mm -hmm. I really dislike happy Holocaust movies. Like, and when I was a kid, I loved Life is Beautiful. Watching it later, it's an evil movie. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, yeah. it is an evil movie, and it, it, it should not be. It all copies should be burned. <laughs> um, maybe not that far, but um, yeah, there is something about um, these movies about the Holocaust where Jews are sort of secondary characters, and you learn a lesson from it that is like instinctually disgusting to somebody that sort of appreciates the heft of 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 that uh you know great crime uh can you speak a little about your review and dislike of jojo rabbit yeah that is i have to say there a, a lot of fan bases have been mad at me in the past for things that i've said about movies that is the most vicious i think anyone has ever gotten <laughs> jojo rabbit stands are, are, are insane and really mean <laughs> but yeah no it's it's a it's a really bad movie to me and and i think you hit it the main reason why which is that like 
not that I think that you can't do jokes about the Holocaust. Like I, I've, I have laughed at jokes about the Holocaust sure. many times before. I mean, but, springtime for Hitler. Everyone likes yeah. the producers, you know. But like the problem with Jojo Rabbit is that like it is not, um, I, I, like a good Holocaust joke has is darkly comic because you know how serious it is, and it's like mm-hmm. you, you have that feeling of like I shouldn't be laughing at this, but I am. Mm-hmm. Um, Jojo Rabbit is like doing the fucking like Moonrise Kingdom. Like wacky, <laughs> fucking you know Nazis like prancing around and and having doing a goofy Hitler impression, mm-hmm. and it is so like lacking in any actual perspective on what like I had people say to me when I complained that like there wasn't enough of like a Jewish perspective in this movie about the Holocaust. People would mm-hmm. say to me, "But it's not about the Holocaust. It's about like what? Nazis <laughs> in World War Two. But like that is the trick the movie pulls on you. It makes them, like what this is actually about." It pushes it so far into the background that it becomes like meaningless and it's becomes a movie about like a little Hitler youth boy learning a lesson about tolerance, <laughs> which um, is an insane, insane way to tell that story. Yeah, that's not I, a similar thing happened with a uh, mouse got controversial. Uh, there was a mouse controversy because uh, that book was being banned in a lot of schools because it's nudity. I there think it, nudity. it is the platonic ideal of a Holocaust depiction because it's not about learning stuff. It's yeah. about it's about bearing witness to horror, which is I think if you're going to depict the Holocaust, it's, it should be that. Or as you mentioned in, rev- in your review, something like Inglorious Bastards. Um, but the thing about Inglorious Bastards, which separates Jojo Rabbit, is that it's explicitly fantasy, and it's telling you it's fantasy, and the point of it is that it's fantasy. Whereas Jojo Rabbit, there is some universal truth to be learned from this little Nazi boy uh, learning his lesson, right? Yeah, it so. becomes too. It wants you to take it too seriously, and if it was just goofy and <laughs> wacky all the time, then like, I don't know if I would like it still, but I would like. I would at least appreciate that, like, you know, if you do, if you want to do a springtime for Hitler thing, then fine. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it's fine to, like, just crank that knob all the way up and go completely ridiculous with it. Um, And that can be fun. Um, But Jojo Rabbit wants to have it both ways. It also wants you to be, like, sincerely moved by this depiction of, like, this this little boy learning that Jews aren't evil. And it's like, but you just, like, it's been so goofy and comedic up to this point that, like, you know... If, if you're going to try to teach me a serious lesson about the Holocaust, then, like, you need to be, like, you need to be, like, a serious movie. Like, you can't yes. be this completely goofy, off-the-walls comedy. Yeah, and you have try to, to be Showa. Yeah. You, yeah, right? You have to be one or the other. Like, yeah. there is, this is, I think, one of the areas where you just can't be in between. You can't half-ass it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think another comparator is like what Mouse was in, uh, inevitably replaced with was The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Oh, yeah. Which is another book about a Nazi boy, you know, learning that Jews aren't so bad, where the Jews are secondary characters in their own story. I think that even comes up in the canonical Holocaust movie Schindler's List, mm-hmm. which is where the Jews are uh, uh, secondary characters. They're yes. Props. Yeah, they are essentially, they're props in a way. Uh, yeah. But. Um, yeah, Cloud Landsman, the director of Showa, famously hated Schindler's List and was like morally, philosophically against it. Do you are you as strongly against? Uh, are you as uh, uh, depictions of the Holocaust in the Cloud Landsman sense, or are you a little more lax with it? I mean, I am more lax with it. I think you know, like I think it was Michael Haneke who also said, um, like 
you can't depict the Holocaust on film because just the act of like creating a film about it and having actors and sets and lights not like automatically trivializes it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't trivialize it. And I don't know that I like, you know, I've gotten something I go back and forth on, but I don't know. I don't think I a hundred percent agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, to have a little thought, you know, do a little research, take yeah. a little bit of care with like, you know, the story you're telling, like boy in the striped pajamas, fucking insane book. Um, <laughs> if people don't know how that book ends, the tragedy of that book, which is like, you know, the little kid who's like lives adjacent to the concentration camp because his dad is an officer and he talks to a little like Jewish boy through the fence. <laughs> And the way that that book ends is that the kid, like, sneaks under the fence with his friend and goes in and get, gets into, like, a gas chamber and gets killed. And <laughs> what? Like, that is the tragedy. Imagine the, the fucking tragedy of the Holocaust is one time a little German boy accidentally <laughs> got killed. I, can, I think we can all say, you know, you know, the Jew is okay. That's one thing. That, but yeah. <laughs> a cute little kid also? <laughs> oh no! Bessie, oh. you can't have gas chambers because what if a little German boy accidentally gets yeah. in there? It's just what too if dangerous. Augustus Gloop, you know, he <laughs> fell into the gas river and you know he got <laughs> shoved up a gas. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, yeah. Um, I think if I'm trying to think of a more successful depiction of the Holocaust uh, by another terrible person, another terrible director is uh, the Pianist. It works a lot better. Because yeah. it's more of a, one, it's a central Jewish character. Two, no lesson is really learned. It's just you bearing witness to the survival of one person. Um, but it's funny because three, they they always, always in this movie, there's one good Nazi. And that's a yeah. trope that's been way back in The Great Escape. There's like a good Nazi. What is that? Why is there always a good Nazi? Um... You know, it's from, I, from my Jewish perspective, I, I liken that to like, you know how, uh, you know, the Martin Freeman character in Black Panther? Yes, the CIA like, agent. All right, we need to have one white guy in there for like the white audiences to yeah. identify with on this adventure. And that's what I think that's about. I think it's like, you know, a non-Jewish audience watching this Holocaust movie is going to be like, huh, you know, I don't really, can't really see myself in all these Jewish people. Mm. What if there was just one nazi who wasn't that bad and it really goes to show something it goes to show something and we're not really going to get into what it goes to show we're not going to think about that (laughs) yeah um yeah there's always i think there's even like a jerry seinfeld joke about how there's one half-hearted nazi who's giving the you know the heil you know he's not he's not really into it them you know they say jerry seinfeld's not funny he had some okay jokes in there he had some who says he's not funny Lots of people, well, you know, because he makes, oh, what's the deal with airline peanuts? You know, the classic That's good hacky. stuff. That's I don't, good. He, he never said that. He never actually said an airline peanuts joke, though. Um, well, they did a whole show about him being in first class and Elaine has to go back to third class or second or whatever it is. Um, yeah. Economy. Um, that whole that whole episode was uh, airplane stuff. I like Seinfeld. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. With, I like Seinfeld without Larry David as... Um, Interesting. You like seasons eight and nine? Yeah, yeah. The Puerto Rican Day Parade. Very funny. <laughs> well, stuff. I don't know. That's that episode. <laughs> what? You don't like the Puerto Rican Day Parade? No, I mean, <laughs> no. That one's the, the one of the weakest ones. Are, That's one of are my you trying favorite. to troll me? Right? Are you trolling no. me right now? No. Are you trolling? You love the Puerto Rican Day I episode? Love that. Okay. 
when the Kramer and 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 George and Jerry all are pretending to be their different characters that they've made up in the past in the show to, yeah. to get into a, a real estate showing to use the bathroom yes. and they have to have a conversation like it's like something like AJ Pennypacker, Art Vandelay, and yeah. and one other who's who yeah, the other whatever guy Seinfeld's. Uh... <laughs> But I love, I love that. that. That was like the closest Seinfeld ever got to a Marvel's girls get it done moment. You know, that was their <laughs> their big <laughs> everyone's coming together because it was like the second to last episode. I mean, so they all had to make the references to make everybody happy. I'm a um, sucker for Seinfeld. I saved I saved up my money in high school to buy the Seinfeld DVDs when they were released on DVD. And I got the little puffy shirt in a box. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, it was like I was like putting it on display in my bookcase. Like I got I got a puffy shirt. Um, my dad bought me a puffy shirt. Uh, it's very embarrassing. Um, I love Seinfeld. Uh, Larry, um, Larry David's a, he's a mean man. Speak, well, speaking <laughs> of Larry David and a source of Jewish humor, um, a very good piece of criticism I find in your Jojo Rabbit view and a good way to analyze stuff from at least, you know, depicting Jewish stuff perspective uh, is the Schlemiel and the Schlemazel analysis. Can you tell us about your Schlemiel and Schlemazel analysis, Esther? This is two sort of classic um, archetypes, comedic archetypes in, in, in Jewish, American Jewish comedy particularly, where the idea is that, um, you know, the two ways to laugh at a character is um, you have the Schlemiel, who is a guy who spills his soup and he, you know, he has this, uh, he has this foible that is sort of uh, understandable and relatable. Mm-hmm. And then the Schlamazel is the guy who has soup spilled on him, mm-hmm. and it's more like you're laughing at him. It's almost like a Schadenfreude thing, like mm-hmm. his misfortunes. You're not supposed to relate to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and you relate that to Jojo Rabbit, this idea that like it, the way that you're laughing at the characters in Jojo Rabbit, the Nazi characters, is supposed mm-hmm. to be relatable. And Mm -hmm. I found that really weird at the time. I thought, like, (laughs) you know, like, the way you laugh at the Nazi characters in Inglorious Bastards, for example, is the complete opposite. They're supposed to be, you know, they're getting fucked up in a a really sometimes hysterical way. Yeah. Um, You know, you're... The, the sort of comedic relationship you have with them is oppositional. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Jojo Rabbit, it's not. It's like, what if Nazis were just like us and they yeah. were going around and just having normal days and normal lives? And it's very, just a very, like, again, you need to either be a much more serious film or a much, like, darker comedy, I think, to really make that work. Um, and I don't think Jojo Rabbit is really interested in doing either of those things. I think that there's there's sort of a thread in centrist liberal thought about oh Nazis are people just like us and there's just compassion that you need to show them in order to get them on the good side like a frequent uh, do you know about Daryl Davis? I don't think so. He's like uh, he's an interesting figure, but he's often held up as someone like this. He's a black guy that talks to Klan members and de-radicalizes them. And um, there's sort of um, a lot of controversy over him. Uh, I forget what the name of his documentary. I think it's called Accidental Courtesy, the name of the documentary about him. But um, there's one thread where he's sort of beloved among centrist liberals because he he is of that belief that education is the only thing that's standing between the right wing and, you know, good progressive values. And but the other part of it is like it's not as if the Klan members he's converting are suddenly, you know, uh, voting communist or anything like that. It's not like they're, you know, they're still voting Republican and stuff like that. So there is like 
uh, criticism of him in the movie too by uh, BLM members who are saying that like this is nice for you. It's nice you're doing a personal thing for somebody, but this doesn't help anything in general, really. You know. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think that is it, if you can de-radicalize a person, that's a very nice thing to do personally. But it's people try and extend that out to it, meaning, oh, I'm changing the world by just changing this one person's mind, which I think is a trap that um, Jojo Rabbit and sort of the central liber- liberal ideology falls into. Yeah, because, you know, there is always a difference between like how someone might act interpersonally and like how they act politically like mm-hmm. like you say like that if that person's still voting for republicans then ultimately they're still enacting fucking racist shit yeah. um even if interpersonally they might not be racist anymore and yeah. i think yeah the 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 thing about jojo rabbit is exactly that fallacy of like well the the nazi kid like made a jewish friend <laughs> so like so everything's fine but like and interestingly um because a lot of people don't know this, the book that Jojo Rabbit is based on is very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens in the book is, so if you don't, if you've seen, not seen Jojo Rabbit, the idea is that at the end of the movie, the allies come in and they sweep the town. All the Nazis are arrested. And then the Jewish girl who's been hiding in Jojo's house, who he's become friends with, finally gets to come out and they, they get to be out on the open in the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, Jojo uh, lies to her and says, does not tell her that the war has ended. And for years, they basically, she lives with him in his house as they grow up together with her thinking she still has to hide, um, not realizing that that the war has ended years and years and years prior. <laughs> that's a fucking, that's a horror story. That's yeah. a nightmare. And at the end of the book, she figures out the truth and she fucking leaves. She bolts. Yeah. <laughs> she gets away from him. And I feel like that's the much more like honest version of that story and that relationship. The idea that like, oh, whatever relationship these two had was entirely conditional on like the fact that she had to be friendly with him to stay safe, basically. Um, And as soon as she doesn't have to anymore, she just goes. Um, Whereas the film version is much more like, no, they have like a real genuine friendship in that circumstance. Because yeah, that first version is the bearing witness to horror. That's a much better, you know, version of, even like in uh, another, even in Band of Brothers, you know, there's that scene where they're going into Auschwitz. That's a much better depiction of the Holocaust, in my view, in Spielberg's uh, ring than uh, Schindler's List. Um, but yeah, um, so we can't talk about, this is a very heavy subject, and we're talking about filmmakers we dislike. I mean, Taika Waititi, I don't even, I don't even hate him that much. He's only, he, he he's recently gotten a lot of scorn, Max Landis-like, from the Mary Sue thing, because of this sort of I mean, recently from a very transphobic post from his past that resurfaced. Um, What you gonna, you know, that every celebrity was tweeting like that in 2013. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I like Hunt for Wilder People, maybe because I like Sam Neill a lot. That does a lot uh, Mm -hmm. for me. Um, I didn't. I I like what we do in the shadows. Couldn't bring myself to watch Wilder Wilder People. Is it? Is it really good? Is it good? It's not really good. It's very sentimental and cloying in that Taika Waititi way. Um, but, um, the actors are really good. The little kid in it is very good. And Sam Neill is very good, which is why the movie I think is beloved. Um, uh, but yeah, let's talk about movies we like now, specifically Esther. I know you are on the, uh, a cultural revival of a certain filmmaker 
that has been reviled for years, but is now being reappraised as maybe a genius. Of course, we are talking about M. Night Shyamalan. I was going to say, that and, could be a lot of people for me. But I <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, yeah, no, I adore him. Um, I think he is really treated unfairly in the middle of his career, especially by people who didn't get what he was going for. I mean, mm-hmm. there's situations like people should just rewatch The Village because The Village mm-hmm. is just a great movie. And I think people were unfair to it at the time because of the expectations that he was going to be like, like I think there's literally a Newsweek cover of him that just says the next Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was never going to be a Spielberg no. type filmmaker. Um, he is much, much like less of a crowd pleaser um, th- than that. And I think like, if you look at a movie like The Happening, I think mm-hmm. that's the great example of like, The Happening is a really funny movie yes. because it is a, it is a 50s B movie. That's yeah. what he's trying to make. He is trying to make something that is, you know, not self-serious or, or self-serious in a way that is like self-effacing deliberately. Yeah. Um, and you can see that in some of the performances in that movie. Like, the, <laughs> you're a Succession fan, and you want to see a great small Jeremy Strong role as this like, um, as this Southern soldier. Um, very, very funny. <laughs> That's great. Um, the Happening's a very funny movie. And then his late, like everything since the visit, I think is just excellent. Um, yeah, and I think old that's was when fantastic. I loved old, old is so great. Much. I rewatched it the other day. I love old. Old is a great example of like what he does in the with the camera in every scene of that movie is like no other filmmaker would think to shoot that scene that way. Like there's a great scene where they're oh, yeah. um, they're doing this uh, surgery on this woman, and you just see it from the perspective of like you know her torso and as they're like people are freaking out and talking and trying to get this like tumor out of her the camera's just like drifting up and up and up past their faces into the sky and it's like no one would ever think to shoot a scene like that that way where like everything is off screen and growing more and more off screen like floating away from the characters oh yeah and it's just like fascinating the choices that he makes um that some people i think just like instinctively tag as bad because they're different um when to me it's like oh this is like this is fascinating the way that he's approaching this. Um, oh, old is marked by great camera. I like in the opening scene when the parents are arguing, there's this amazing dolly shot sequence where he's just panning throughout the hotel room that they're in. It's like yeah. very unique. Um, it's, it's weird that they were saying the next Spielberg, because if anything, I think the, the practice he inherits is from Roger Corman. He is like, mm-hmm. our, uh, he's in that vein, very similar, but it's like, he's making these B movies, but with this a level technical mastery, which yeah. is what I think creates the unique quality of M. Night Shyamalan movies. Yeah, absolutely. I think you see it with Split, too. Like, Split is a very, like, um, a B-movie concept. Um, but it is taken to this sort of, like, because he approaches it so sincerely, he takes it to this new sort of height um, and this new, like, genuine emotional resonance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I like, I don't think all his films work. Um, I think that, like... The Last Airbender is the one that I'm like, you know, I, I think swing and a miss for yeah. for reasons that are outside of his control. And in some ways, like you can't make that was a 22 episode season of television yeah. that he tried to squeeze into 90 minutes. Like it was just never going to work. Yeah. Um, and some of the casting, obviously, people got upset. About, but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the the, the whitewash casting. Um, very. The, the racial issues in The Last Airbender are very strange because yes. um, in the show the um the fire nation the bad guys the all the design is taken from like china 
um, and like the water tribe is supposed to be like Inuit and yeah. um, or I'm sorry, the Fire Nation's Japan. Yeah, the, the Fire Nation's China, Japan. Yeah, um, and the Air Nation is like uh, Tibetan monks or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the movie, um, everyone is white except for the Fire Nation, who are all Indian. Yeah, which is interesting coming from an Indian guy. It's a <laughs> very, very strange like <laughs> decision he made that I still yeah. can't wrap my head around. It's also just um, the movie where he's most out of his element, yes. pun intended. And uh, he's, uh, but yeah, he, I've never thought of him as a high fantasy sort of epic movie type of guy. He like works really well in these contained sort of drama pieces with a lot of characters. Like one of his most famously reviled movies, Lady in the Water, I think, is actually deserving of immense reappraisal. It's it's actually pretty good upon rewatch. And a lot of people have a problem with that movie because he casts himself as the writer that will save the world in it. Yeah, again, but I think clearly tongue-in-cheek. Like, I think he, I think it is unfair to assume that he was being, like, that in doing that, he was being like, yes, this is how I view myself. Yeah. Like, I on. mean, he has, like, Bob Balaban as a cartoonishly evil critic in it, and that's, like, uh, <laughs> he can't... Yeah, th- people thinking that he's being serious is, like, maybe the biggest hamper to his uh, 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 appraisal. Yeah, they they think he's being serious when he's not, and I think it f- makes them unable to see like that when he is being serious, it really works a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, the stuff at the end of old, um, which I guess I won't spoil if people haven't seen yeah. it. Yeah, thank you. A year ago. Alex like, spoiled Nope for me last week. <laughs> sorry, oh, no. or no, two sorry. Weeks ago. Movie I, I really liked, by the way. But um, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about Nope. I can talk about. Wait, yeah. Stephen, have you seen Nope yet? No, and I, if you keep spoiling it from it, I'm going to quit. <laughs> I have to wait until it comes out on the TV. Um, yeah, old is really good, and it also got it got um, uh, criticized for having that clunky expositional dialogue. But I like that clunky expositional. Yeah. Di- that's the vibe, you know. I think that he gets away, like you know, he gets away with it because half the characters are supposed to be kids. I mm. think right, like. Um, they they get away with a lot of exposition early because the kids are going around and asking all the characters their profession. Um, which, but, mm. you know, to me, it's like, yeah, that's, I don't know, that seems like a thing kids would do. They would, yeah. you know, if you're six years old. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think I think he is unfairly maligned because his scripts and his the performances he directs don't often sound like what people think is real. I think mm-hmm. people have an expectation of what a movie should sound like. So they think when something doesn't sound like that, it's not real. It's not yeah, realistic. Yeah, movie should sound people... like Michael Clayton. Yeah, but people in real <laughs> people in real life don't talk like that. Like, yeah. it's a completely different rapport and, 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 and energy that people actually would have when they're not being scripted. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I try and think of the stuff that is most, uh, uh, similar to real life dialogue. And all I'm thinking of is the, the new smiling friend special where they're just, uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. That is like that, that is perfectly captures like how people talk to each other, how people talk over each other and mm-hmm. like interrupt each other. God, yeah. what a great episode. <laughs> I wonder if they were, I wonder if they, I, they probably weren't inspired, but it very much reminds me of Robert Altman. Uh, yes. I don't think the smiling friends guys. I don't. I would. <laughs> I don't think they've seen Nashville. But Maybe. if they have, I'd be. I'd be <laughs> totally surprised. And uh, yeah, yeah. I just love that show. I I uh, I talk about it anytime I get an opportunity. Because as you know, someone who draws as well as a cartoonist, it's like a big. 
it's a big deal for me. Yeah. We actually, there's a Get Cynical bonus episode about Smiling Friends because those guys started on YouTube. Yes. Um, so we counted it. Um, so, if, you know, I'll, I'll plug the Patreon maybe at the end of the show. Hell but, yeah. Uh, if you do that, you can listen to that and all our bonuses. Nice. Uh, so, M. Night Shyamalan. I, I want to talk about Shyamalan more because I think mm-hmm. there is something... There, there is something opposite about him to, like, the figures of Doug Walker and Max Landis, where it's very much he doesn't have this this outrageous egomania. Or maybe he does, but every time I've seen, like, an interview with him, he seems like a humble, sort of down-to-earth guy who's, like, just trying to—he likes this—I want to tell a scary picture. I want to tell a story. You know, he has that sort of— Corman-like, workman-like, you know, where the art and commerce meet, you know, we're making, we're telling a picture here, you know. Yeah, you um, never see him say, like, you know, I'm going to make the kind of movie that no one has ever seen before. And, like, yeah, that that kind of ambition, I think his films are ambitious in a lot of ways, but he doesn't have that, like, egomaniacal, like, approach where it's like, I'm going to make the best movie of all time. He's making just kind of the movies that he would like to see and want to make and and, you know, saying things, the things he wants to say and I think very uh, uh, humble ways, I guess, mm-hmm. as compared to some other filmmakers, maybe. Um, so you are uh, a media archivist uh, through your education. What yes. what interests you in that field? Um, I first got interested in it because um, uh, a good friend of mine uh, named Alyssa, if she's listening, um, went to a, a film archiving program in New York and would, uh, you know, show me these pictures of like uh film strips that she was inspecting and like Mm. you know oh and i'm just like oh my i was just like oh my gosh this is what i want to do because i went to undergrad for just sort of generic film production film studies and like Mm -hmm. you know you can't really find work on unless you move to los angeles that's not gonna like get you Mm -hmm. a job really so i was like i'll 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 go into this you know archiving field that seems to be like really interesting and it became a real a real passion for me um and i ended up uh writing my graduate thesis on podcast preservation actually oh very very interesting field yeah um which is funny to me because it is like it is such a huge medium of expression now Mm -hmm. um i think almost past the extent that people in just you know speaking from like the archiving field i think people will sort of treat it as disposable because it is so easy to produce and it is there are so many of them mm-hmm. um you know if you think about a film like which takes so much effort to make and which you're in you know certain terms like pretty rare compared mm-hmm. to you know another art any other art form or any you know my point is there's billions of podcasts right yes. <laughs> there are so many and the task of 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 preserving them seems so difficult to approach that i think a lot of people would just say kind of why bother yeah um but to me it's like we should preserve these and even if they are almost all just kind of produced by normal people we should teach people how to preserve their own material because people will just put stuff up on apple or on itunes and on spotify and not really think about it right like yeah these platforms that could just tomorrow if they wanted to they could just delete everything you own absolutely for no reason and dead media is like a huge problem like you can't access kelly cartoons from the onion from like more than three years ago because vc came in and fucked the entire uh back end up so, exactly, yeah. yeah. You, like People have to like take this into their own hands at a certain point, I think. Yeah, the preservation like, yeah. of digital media is extremely 
difficult. Mm -hmm. um, are you familiar with IPFS? Sounds familiar. Uh, it's Interplanetary File System. Um, it's <laughs> unfortunately named, but mm -hmm. the goal is, is I think, more preservation of digital media. Because um, online there's this problem of link rot mm -hmm. where... Mm. You can't depend on a link if it's more than five years old. Um, there's so many links out there that are, have become dead because um, people stop paying the fees to maintain the website. The website goes dark. And, um, you know, for this podcast, we rely on uploading to Google Drive. And mm -hmm. if I ever make, if we ever do something where I upload it to Google Drive and there's like a copyrighted song and Google scans it, they could lock us out of our account forever. Um, yeah. And then I'd have to rely on the podcast host. And if we ever do something they don't like, they could lock me out forever. So, I, okay, what can I do? I can put it on a hard drive, which has a lifespan of maybe 10 years. So I, yeah. what do I, I got to keep doing hard drives. Um, <laughs> so IPFS is like trying to have like a distributed uh, way of decentralized, all the, all the crypt, they use all the crypto buzzwords, which makes people kind of disregard it. Mm -hmm. But it is not related to cryptocurrency. It's just like set up to be used with the crypto stuff, which I kind of find annoying. But it's like a worthwhile thing to look into um, mm. because it, it is a one proposed way of trying to preserve online media. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I do think, like like you say, in general, I always say it's good to have redundancies. It's good to have... Um, you know, sort of the 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 general the the, the ten commandments of digital preservation, like to say that you should have in an ideal situation um, files stored in different formats and in different physical locations. Mm -hmm. um, and if you really want to get into the weeds, they talk about how you should have them stored in like different climates that are subject to different like freak weather events. <laughs> um, so you'll have one in a place that's subject to like earthquakes, but you want don't want them in two places that are subject to earthquakes because if the earthquake one goes down, you want one in the hurricane zone. Um, and hopefully that one survives. Um, but yeah, like I, I in 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 my thesis I talked about how like ideally you want to have stuff stored both on a physical hard drive and in some sort of digital uh, cloud storage. Um, and unfortunately, like, you know, the unfortunate fact of it is like, you're probably going to have to interact with an evil corporation at some point <laughs> yeah, yeah. in this process. There's kind of no getting around it. Um, but you know, that's why that's, what's great about having a physical hard drive is like, no matter what, if, if, you know, Jeff Bezos decides he's just going to zap all your shit one day, you still have it mm. physically. Mm -hmm. That file format thing though, is also interesting because there, there could come a time where your file format is no longer supported by any yep. computer that's around. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it sort of is why we need like, um, an open free internet that, you know, free, not as in, um, freedom of speech or no, i'm sorry not as in free as free beer but freedom of speech like the, all the buzzwords that the that the linux guys um are constantly talking about when they're not being reactionary yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean people really take for granted that like if i have a file then i'll just it'll just be there forever and it's like well even if that's true there are probably you know think think about whatever computer you used 15 years ago there are mm -hmm. probably files on that that you couldn't use on your current computer because yeah. programs, you know, uh, stop being updated and, um, you know, whatever 
thing you have that could open that file just doesn't work anymore. Um, there's a great story I read recently about this piece of software um, that was basically like a computerized way of teaching um, barn bat mitzvah students to like chant the, their Torah portion. <laughs> so they would put it in and it would like, that you know, it would be like a MIDI thing, right? So it would yeah. tell them like the intonations and stuff. Um, and just like every synagogue uses this apparently. But the guy who made it in like the 90s just died. Mm -hmm. And it was like, well, that's it. Because if he can't update the licenses anymore, it's just going to stop working one day. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are like desperately trying to find a way to like basically um, rebuild it from the ground up. Um, but yeah, like that is the sort of that is that's an example of like digital media and digital software is in a lot in some ways like way, way, way more precarious than physical. It is. You know? mm -hmm. the, and all, a lot of these like e evil corporations that you mentioned depend on open source software that is often maintained by one person. And yeah. when they die, that's kind of like there's there's like kind of screwed. Um, there's recently a, uh, a JavaScript developer who kind of had a breakdown and intentionally corrupted some of his um, projects because major corporations were depending on them and not funding him at all. Mm. And he was, his name was dragged through the mud online. No one will work with him. And I thought that was just really sad because he, he had, his point is correct, which is like all, we all are depending on these um, open source software developers to uh, fix software for free so that uh, huge companies can make b billions of dollars. Um so that's just tangential to pr preservation, but um, like open source software is very important, and it makes me sad when when yeah. everybody's using Windows. <laughs> <laughs> I I think this is point is really interesting because I think this idea of the precarity of digital preservation has cropped up a lot in our horror because lost media is now like a huge horror genre, a huge mm -hmm. subgenre for it. And I know uh, there's a bunch of lost media films that you're you're a big fan of. Oh, I mean, if you want to talk, I could talk about found footage films. Hell day. yeah, found footage I, films. I love them. And what's, well, what's interesting about found footage films is like the way the genre has developed is a lot of great ones have moved away from the idea of the footage being found. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, an amazing film I love called The Borderlands, um, mm -hmm. which I think is also called Final Prayer in some countries. I never know which switch, like what it's called in America. Um, but look it up, especially if you liked Nope. And that's all mm -hmm. I'll say. If you liked Nope, there's stuff in the Borderlands that is almost, you could say, was referenced in Nope. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I won't, I won't spoil the ending, but like the, the footage in that film could not be found. <laughs> it's yeah. impossible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, you know, I, I, obviously the Blair Witch Project, which is great, like the sort of viral marketing aspect of it relied on the idea that the footage was found, right? Mm -hmm. Like and the idea that it was found in real life by real people. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the further away you move from the, the possibility of that ever fooling people again, which I don't think, you know, you can't do a Blair Witch Project yeah, again yeah. because people will just know. Um, it's sort of the idea of the footage being ever being lost or found becomes irrelevant, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, like I think, you know, Cloverfield's an example of something that does have kind of a framing device of like, this was found by the military at ground zero of the monster attack. Mm -hmm. um, but like... Um, I'm trying to think paranormal activity, I guess did it, but like 
you know, another great, a great example of a great found footage movie that people don't talk about as a found footage mm-hmm. movie is the Orson Welles movie, The Other Side of the Wind. Interesting. Which was, um, unfinished before he died, but later mm-hmm. Netflix went back a couple of years ago and finished it and released it, just finished editing it. Mm-hmm. And um, that movie is a found footage movie. It is, the idea is it is pieced together from all of these cameras that were filming at this event, this legendary director's uh, birthday party the night before he died. Mm-hmm. Um, it was played by John Huston. And um, that movie, like, was being made, like, before fucking Cannibal Holocaust, mm-hmm. which itself isn't really a found footage movie anyway. Yeah. Um, but that's what it is. The idea is, like, you know, they talk about in the movie, it's uh, one of the characters says uh, sort of, Uh, as narration when the movie opens is like the idea is we're trying to get a vision of this guy as he was through all these different viewfinders so from all of these different perspectives of different people who are around him how people are seeing him um and like that doesn't rely on the idea that the that the footage was ever lost even though like in real life literally it was Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of um it's just sort of it's more the idea of the you know a camera that is motivated by a character in the world that's being depicted mm-hmm. um, rather than sort of, you know, a camera that is just not supposed to, you're supposed to pretend it's not there. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of great found footage films just sort of do away with that idea. And I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I could go on. There is another thread with lost media beyond where it's like, especially with creepypasta, there mm-hmm. is a type of lost media horror story, which is like, the episode of SpongeBob that will make yes. you go insane. They banned oh, yes. this episode. You can't find it anymore. Or like the, uh, and, you know, coming around full circle to Max Landis, who I think produced Channel Zero. Yes, uh, that's right. <laughs> the first the first uh, season of that is uh, of lost media. The, the children show that makes you go insane. <laughs> um but I think there is something that there is something scary about the idea of something that is potentially important being lost or something that has potentially a lot of power being lost and yeah. rediscovering it again as like this ancient spell book or like the or like uh, uh, the Kandarian Book of the Dead and Evil Dead. You know, it's like uh, there, there's something powerful to that idea of. Uh, media being lost, taking on an almost supernatural or deathly uh, uh, pallor to it. Yeah. Well, especially I think in you know the the modern day when the we just expect everything to be available all the time, right? Like mm-hmm. it is it, to me when I'm look if I'm ever looking for a movie and it's just not anywhere, I'm kind of like, oh man, that's fucking weird. Like why can't I find it on my pirate pirate sites mm-hmm. or on any streaming or on DVD? In fact, that has been an issue on Get Cynical because a lot of these movies we talk about on Get Cynical have just been erased from history. Are, are you telling me the distribution for me, him, her is not is <laughs> that not was the so robust? Hardest one to find. That's the hardest one to find. The Max Landis movie, Me, Him, Her is not on any streaming it is not no there there are no torrents of it no one wanted to torrent this movie <laughs> the only dvd you can get is like from germany um you had to go to one of those sites that's like movies abc.ru <laughs> to find me him her <laughs> i like the idea that people in russia are like they're just getting max landis now <laughs> uh, um that's so incredibly that's that's very funny because um also, Red, is, Red Letter Media reviewed Be Him Her because they were still friends with Max Landis at the time, and yeah. they hated it, which is really <laughs> funny. 
Collins. Uh, this guy who we're ostensibly friends with and who hooked us up with Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, the movie's not good. You know, we'll be <laughs> honest about it. Um, uh, I wonder, no one's really grilled them on that. Uh, no, I don't think the RLM guys have ever addressed that. Uh, it'd be funny if they did. I think they're guys who just... So, and we talk about this on Get Cynical, too. Like, sometimes guys just get away with that stuff. Yeah. And it never comes... We just recently did a bonus episode on the Derek Comedy movie, Mystery Team. Oh, yeah. Um, I love Derek we talked Comedy about how, back like, in the day. Yeah, yeah. Like, Donald Glover... I mean, he's great in those old videos. Like, oh, just, yeah. like, immediately apparent what a, what a talent yeah, like he is. A big star, yeah. Yeah, but, like, those videos are, like, there's some edgy shit in there. And, like, it, he's, it's just funny that, like, his career exploded... And he never had the moment of people going back to those old videos and being like, what the fuck? Like, what yeah. is he? Donald Glover was doing these, like, rape jokes and stuff. Yeah, bro um, rape just, was one of their biggest videos. Yeah. And he, he, he has just skated on it entirely. <laughs> and I just think it's funny. Like, yeah, sometimes sometimes the, the call-out post just never comes for people. Yeah. Also, like, if you're, as, if you're as skilled as Donald Glover, like, I don't even like Atlanta that much, but he's clearly, like, I don't, I don't think he's, like, it's the best thing ever, but he's clearly an extremely talented performer. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it's funny to, like, he was also, like, writing the best 30 Rock jokes at, like, age 23 or something yeah. like that. Incredible. Incredible stuff. And, you know, I, I, I prefer early, not as serious Donald Glover when... <laughs> Soon as he gets the beard, and you know, uh, that's when shit changes. He's still good, but it's not. It's not my favorite stuff anymore. Yeah. Um, oh, I just thought of something that's completely unrelated. Um, what? Okay, to catch a predator, the the movie, and okay. it's the predator. Oh, okay, yeah. So right. it's oh, yeah. Chris Hansen saying, "Have a seat over there," to the predator. Yeah. <laughs> right, and it's they've the entrapped. predator. So yeah. Instead of they've instead of trapping the predator with you know ropes or, or, or contraptions, they've entrapped him by you know online yes. In yes. chat rooms. Yes, they do. They send him sexy. They send yeah, him sexy yeah. text messages. Uh, the problem with that is Chris Hansen is a Mary Sue. Uh, yeah. He could never catch the. It's predator. unrealistic. It's too perfect. Yeah, no one could catch that many predators. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, it, if a predator could it tear through fucking. Jesse Ventura, no way, Chris Hansen. <laughs> shaven. I, you know what I love about the original Predator movie? How Bill Duke's just always shaven himself, mm, and yeah. it's never addressed. That's just like, where did that come from? Was that in the script? Was that just like something they added? To, I mean, it, I love it. It adds so much to the movie, and like that's a character with very little dialogue that like gets a lot of uh, emotional beats. So it's like. Uh, yeah, they just don't do stuff like that in movies anymore because then Logan Paul will be like, um, why did they shave the... Why? What, what was the point of the fucking razor? Ah. Yeah. I have to say, uh, back in the day, like eight years ago, when the Russo brothers said that they tried to make one of the Captain America movies like CinemaSins proof, that was the moment <laughs> I remember thinking like, oh man, it's the beginning of the end. Yeah. You know, we're never going to get interesting movies again. Uh, speaking of CinemaSins and... Uh, early and YouTube and like YouTube catastrophes. Uh, Matt Landis was on Screen Junkies a lot, yeah. uh, which maybe the the outing of Sin Andy Senor as a sex pest should have been uh, uh, was sort of a prelude to Max <laughs> Landis's eventual uh, sex pest revelations. And yeah. but it's interesting because on that show you see the power of Max Landis, and you mention it on Get Cynical. He is the best pitcher on earth. Yes. He can pitch anything. But the problem is it's all insubstantial crap. 
It's good yeah. elevator pitch stuff, but it's like secretly this island this this captain is on he's captain hook yes that uh, is the one I, I remember so vividly hearing back in the day uh yeah. it's like again he he is leading you towards that moment of like oh shit this is the thing that i recognize actually yeah. this is fucking peter pan and because you're having that moment of revelation you forget that like oh wait this wouldn't like <laughs> this is just a normal kind of boring pirate story up to this yeah point. yeah it's it's interesting because it, what M. Night Shyamalan got dogged for was that, oh, there's a twist in every M. Night Shyamalan movie. But at least, you know, the narrative things in M. Night Shyamalan movies are thematically linked to, like, what the movie is about. Yeah. With with Max Landis, it's just, like, it's another, like, uh, uh, Space Jam thing. It's like, here's something yeah. you recognize. <laughs> It's like, yeah. oh, it's not, this isn't something you recognize, but now here's something you recognize, and like, ooh, a reference, yay! Yeah, literally. I mean, if you ever watch, I, I don't know if we're ever going to do them on, on the show, because there's so many, but if you ever watch on his YouTube channel, his, like, um, he has these long videos where he talks about, like, where his Superman comic would have gone, and he explains mm. the story, and one thing that he says in, like, three of them when he's trying to explain that a moment is like a big deal and a turning point, he says, it's like the scene in Ghostbusters where all the ghosts get, you know, get let out. (laughs) That's his reference point is just like, and it's funny because it's like, you know, so many great directors. Like if you talk to Martin Scorsese, he'll be like, oh, yes, this is just like the scene in the red shoes. Yeah, yeah. Reference, you know, is Powell and Pressburger. Yeah, this is like Tokyo Story or something (laughs) like that, yeah. (laughs) Max Landis is like, this is just like in fucking Back to the Future. Yeah. (laughs) These 80s soy Stranger Things movies. I shouldn't call them soy, but um, they do seem to be beloved by the soy contingent. Yeah, yeah. Reddit Reddit movies. Reddit movies, yes. The soy contingent? The soy contingent. That's that's cool. That's too cool (laughs) of a name. (laughs) The soy contingent, yeah. Um... Yeah, Max Landis really was the the Reddit as an adjective before Reddit. Uh, yeah. Sort of foundational to what that is, this sort of performative nerdiness. It's it's not only do you like mainstream slop, you the mainstream slop is the best thing ever to the exclusion of, you know, art. Yeah, he really rode that wave of, like, that early 2010s, like, nerds are actually cool now, and the coolest yeah. thing you can be is a nerd. Um, and then, like, everyone who rode that wave turned out to be a sexual predator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all. All of them. Um, I think that's what's also interesting about Doug Walker, too. It, uh, sort of mirrored in the Game Grumps episode with Aaron Hansen, how he's just this central figure, has these scandals keep happening around him that he has to do. Doug Walker... Talk about someone that managed to dodge every potentially career-ending thing that he was associated yeah. with very he's, impressively. He's still doing the nostalgia critic. And we, we talk about on Get Cynical, like, there will just always be an incoming generation of 10-year-olds for him, basically, to, like, enjoy watching the man screech at the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fun, you know, like, th- the sad thing about Doug Walker, and you know, I, I encourage people to listen to the show, but, like, he tried to step away from the nostalgia critic. Like he was done with it. He was tired of the bit and he wanted to do other things <laughs> and people hated the other things he did so much that he had to go back and he's been doing the nostalgia critic ever since. And like, yeah, it is like, it's kind of sad to see whenever I see he has a new video about like a new movie that's out doing the character and doing mm-hmm. the, the shtick. It's like, you were tired of that. Like six years ago, like it must just suck to be Doug Walker. <laughs> 
It's he's the Michael Corleone of YouTube. They keep <laughs> pulling me back in. They keep <laughs> pulling me back in. Yeah. Max Landis to me specifically, what could possibly revive his career at this point? That is a good question. Um, something we talk about, like, with, we talked about with the YouTube guys is, like, a lot of them could have made pivots to be, like, you know, epic irony guys on Twitter um, or, like, you know, doing leftist podcasts. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. They probably would have been able to revive their careers. I think Max Landis, like, the name is just so fucking toxic that, like, I'm sure studios would give him, you know, studio mm-hmm. executives don't care about any of this stuff. They will... Yeah. You know, they don't care if you're a sex pest or whatever. Yeah, John um, Lasseter just got a new movie. Yeah, literally. Like, so it could happen. Like, I'm sure someone will buy a script from him again one day. But I feel like just, like, the name is so poisonous at this point that I don't see him having, like, a real resurgence in popularity. Like, nobody likes him, you know? Yeah. Even, it like, was... He, he was as he was too soy for the right-wing guys for him to even make that pivot. <laughs> like, he could have, you know... The, the last saving grace of these guys is to become a MAGA guy, right? Yeah. Like, because those people will just buy anything. Yeah. But, like, Max Landis could never convincingly pull that off. <laughs> well, uh, well, that a, a dark harbinger of things to come is MAGA, <laughs> MAGA Landis in the future. Maybe that's, uh, maybe it will <clears throat> sync up nicely with uh, Get Cynical. Uh, <laughs> Esther, thank you so much for being on our show. You, a great guest. Uh, I encourage everyone to listen to Get Cynical. It is it is required listening. It is like there are a billion podcasts out there and this is like one of the best, like out of the billion. Like it's it really is something special. And uh, I'm so happy to have you on here today. Well, thank you so much for for having me. Um, Should I tell people where they can find stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. Plugs. Do your plugs. All right. Well, I'm I'm on Twitter at Cappy Baroness, C-A-P-Y-B-A-R-O-N-E-S-S. Um, and you can, you know, I'll link to everything that I send out. If you want to listen to Get Cynical, you can Google Get Cynical Podcast, and we have a SoundCloud page. Um, if you want to do it in your podcast app, search for Those Good Old Fashioned Values, which is our sister show, um, and it's all, everything will be in that feed. Also um, an excellent show. Yes, also very good and worth listening to, um, and I'm on a bunch of those episodes. And then on Patreon, if you go to patreon.com slash T-G-O-F-V, you can subscribe and you can get our bonus episodes, which are also very good. All right. Yeah, that's about it. Hell yeah. Uh, Those uh, bonus episodes also feature somebody who's been a a guest on uh, this show, Cole. Uh, yes, he's, he's very he's always on point. He's a great media critic as well. So absolutely subscribe to G, uh, TGOFV on uh, on Patreon to get those. Mm-hmm. And thank you again for having me. Oh, absolutely. This has been wonderful. And to everybody in podcast land, have a great day. Bye.